as Christians, it has come to the place in the history of our country that we are often mocked, ridiculed, and in many cases even hated because we believe in the Bible and we believe in the God of the Bible. I'm talking about true Christians. You don't find a lot of pushback against liberal Christians or just world religions and even some false uh, religions such as Islam and things like that. They're not hated by the world. They're not challenged or ridiculed. You can't do that. But true Christians who believe in the true God are oftentimes in our day mocked or ridiculed. They say that we are fools or uneducated because we believe in creation and we don't believe in their theory of evolution. And so we're uneducated even though the overwhelming facts point to the reality of a Creator rather than their foolish theory of chance and just uh, uh, time and matter and chance becoming you. We're fools because we believe that God created these intricate and wonderful things that we have called our bodies and because of everything that is on the earth and yet they think we're stupid or that we're foolish for this? I think the shoe's on the other foot. But they mock us and they ridicule us because we believe in God and we believe in His Word. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe in life after death, a heaven and a hell. I recently heard in a documentary that one person said that as Christians, we lie to our children every day and teach them the things of the Bible. It hurts. I cannot deny the fact that it causes me grief and pain and even a little righteous indignation. Maybe a lot of righteous indignation to hear these things and to be told that I'm a a fool or naive because I believe in God and because I believe in the Bible. But the pain that I feel in my heart and the pain that we feel, the embarrassment or the slight discomfort that we may get from the kind of ridicule that we go through is nothing compared to what some people are going through in this world. For taking a stand for Jesus. There are men and women. We think of this one woman in Saudi Arabia who is imprisoned with a death sentence because she became a Christian. And that, that's just one of many in many countries where you are killed if you say you are a Christian and if you deny Islam. They put you to death. In other countries and in other places, they're imprisoning Christians. And this is the worst time in the history of the world for martyrdom for Christ. More people are being martyred today for their faith than ever. It's difficult. It's tough. Yet, I say to you that this has been the case throughout most 
of church history. True Christians have suffered at the hands of false religions and pagan nations. And I'll tell you today, upon the authority of God's Word, that's what you should expect. Turn back with me, if you would please, to Matthew's Gospel and chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Here in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 10, we read a little while ago about Jesus telling the disciples that they would be given up, handed over to authorities and governors and kings. And in verse 18, He says, for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And He says in verse 22, and you will be hated by all on account of My name. You will be hated by all on account of My name. Not everybody's going to love us. Why do you think Jesus said that? Because it's true. Because it's true. The Christian world today seems to paint a different picture. Like when you come to Christ, things get great and things get better. Jesus did not put this verse. This verse is not here. He did not say this just to confuse the health and wealth gospel people. Like they they somehow don't seem to realize that this verse is in the Bible. This is here to warn us, to tell us that this is what we should expect as true Christians. In America, we've seen a lot different way. Life of ease here in America for Christians, but not so in many other places. But this is what Jesus told us to expect. Now, look at the next verse. Verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. What is Jesus saying there? It happened to him. It's going to happen to you. That's where we're going today in our study from Acts chapter 4. If you'd turn there with me in your Bibles, please. Here in Acts chapter 4, we have been seeing the prayer of the disciples as they came back to the group. And over the last several Lord's Days, we've been considering what they were praying, and specifically from verses 27 and 28, what they pray. Verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against the Holy Servant Jesus, or Thy Holy Servant Jesus, whom Thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever Thy hand and Thy purpose predestined to occur. We began looking at this text by actually focusing upon verse 28, seeking to understand what is being said by these men in their prayer. And we saw several things from verse 28 as they spoke of the power of God in His mighty hand, the purpose of God from all eternity, and the predestination of God bringing to pass His eternal plan. 
And what we saw was here in this text that our God, the God of the Bible, is a sovereign God. The Almighty, the All-Powerful, Sovereign God. The God who is God. If you don't believe that God is sovereign, you don't believe in the God of the Bible. To say anything less of Him is to take away His divinity. To take away who He is as God. And I tell you that there are many churches in our day that are doing that. They are bringing God down and they are elevating man so that we're almost on the same plane. God and and man are the same. And man, in many cases, is even more important than the God of the Bible. But we believe in the sovereign God. The God who has a mighty, powerful hand. Who has a purpose. And has predestined the things to come that He is working even today. Now, from there, we went on to see what they were talking about. That is an understanding of what was being said. But then we began to consider what exactly happened that they were praying this. And that comes from verse 27. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant, and so on. He's talking about, they're talking about the passion of our Lord. They're talking about His crucifixion, His cross, and the whole complex of His death and burial and resurrection. And we made the point from this text to see here that they are speaking of what we are calling the sovereignty of God in the cross of Christ. This has been what we've been looking at. And our first stop was actually not dealing with what was exactly the cross. We talked first about the God's sovereignty over the sending of His Son from Galatians where He said He came at the exact right time. He came at the exact time that He needed to come. Everything was right for His coming, including what would be His death, crucifixion on the cross. If He had come before Rome, there would have been no crucifixion. If He had come now, there is no crucifixion. He had to come at the exact right time. We went on from there to see that our God is sovereign in the ordering of the raising of Lazarus. That we looked at Jesus and Jesus' sovereignty in raising Lazarus from the dead. That He purposefully stayed where He was. He deliberately went to where Lazarus was. And He powerfully raised Him from the dead, which forced the hand of Israel, of the Pharisees and the scribes, to do something about this one because everybody was following after Him now. And we had right after that the triumphal entry. They had to do something. If that hadn't happened, they could have just sat back and waited. And there would have been no cross. They had to act. And they did. And following that, we went on to see from Mark's Gospel in chapter 14, Jesus' sovereignty over arranging the Last Supper. We saw that He knew what the disciples would find when they entered the city. And we saw that He knew Judas's heart that He would betray Him. And that hatred that the Jews had towards Jesus was also again used in bringing about the crucifixion of Jesus. Last Lord's Day, we considered God's sovereignty or Jesus' sovereignty in allowing His arrest. I ask you to turn with me, if you would, please, 
to John's Gospel in chapter 18. John's Gospel in chapter 18. We saw here from this text that at a time when it looked the least like Jesus was in control, that He shows us by what happened that He was completely in control. They come. Judas, as we had said, betrayed Him. He's coming. He's leading this Roman cohort which we said was at least or somewhere in the vicinity of 500 trained Roman soldiers. There were also temple guards and there were a multitude of people with them. And they come and they come for Jesus and they said, and Jesus initiates and He comes out and He says, who are you looking for? This is in the very beginning of the chapter. In verse 4, whom are you seeking? In verse 5, and they answered and said to Him, Jesus the Nazarene. And then we had what we called the great I am declaration. I am He. The He is in italics. Because what He said was, I am! Indicating again His divinity. As God declared Himself or showed Himself to Moses through the burning bush, I am who I am. Yahweh, I am. And Jesus says, I am. And what happened? They fell back to the ground. That's what it says in the text. And when He therefore said, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. These trained Roman soldiers overcome with the power of the God who is God. Jesus says He said, I am. Showing that He was in control. And from there we had the disciples that were able to go free so that they would not be crucified with Him. They had work to do. And so He allowed them to go free. But from there we saw His merciful manifestation, how He healed the ear of the servant even in the midst of His arrest. And from there the prophesied separation that all of His disciples were spared. The I Am Declaration, His merciful manifestation, and His prophesied separation or the prophesied separation of the disciples that took place at His arrest. Today, we come to Jesus' sovereignty presiding over His trials. There's a lot in the Scriptures, believe it or not, about the trials of Jesus. I can't even begin to cover all of it. So, we're only going to look at a few things and what I've decided to do is to make a couple of comparisons a couple of contrasts between those that were arresting Him, those that were doing this, and Jesus our Lord. I had a lot more that I wanted to cover, but I'm only going to get to two. We're going to begin here in the Gospel of John, seeing the first contrast to be their trickery and His honesty. Their trickery and His honesty. Here in John chapter 18, we see Jesus before Annas. Look at verse 13. Now remember, He's been arrested. He allowed them to arrest Him. And it says in verse 13, they led Him to Annas first. For He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So they led Him to Annas. Now skip down to verse 19. The high priest therefore 
questioned Jesus about His disciples and about His teaching. So here we have the questioning of Jesus as it begins in this passage. I dealt with some of these things here. Peter outside and his denial of Jesus. But here we have in verse 19, the priest questions Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Basically, this priest was asking Jesus to betray his disciples. It says he questioned him first about his disciples. Who are your disciples? Where are your disciples? It's likely that they expected the disciples to be arrested with Jesus and to be there with Him. As we said last week, it is likely had they been arrested that there would have been a lot more crosses. That they would likely have been crucified as well. As traitors against Rome and rioters against the nation of Israel. And so had they been arrested with Jesus, there would have been a lot more crosses. But they weren't there. And so the first thing the high priest says is, where's your disciples? Who are your disciples? So basically, he's asking him to betray his disciples. Then he asks Jesus this about his own teaching. What about your teaching? You know what he's asking him to do? He's asking him to convict himself. Basically, he's asking Jesus to tell them why you're here. Why are you here? Is that what happens when somebody goes to trial? When somebody goes to a courtroom? The judge says, hey, why are you here? And my son would say that that's not the case. I doubt if he's ever been in a courtroom where that would happen. Why are you here? He's asking Jesus to convict himself. So what Jesus responds in the following verses is absolutely appropriate because no charges were brought against him. And so he says in verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple when all the Jews came together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard me. What I spoke to them, behold, these know what I said. In other words, if you get something from them with which to charge me with a crime, do so. And he's doing exactly what is proper and right, for they had no charges for to arrest him. There was no reason for him to be brought in. Nobody ever said anything to accuse Jesus of a crime. And that's why he's saying, I spoke openly. I taught before all the people. If anybody has a charge against me, ask them. So Jesus was saying what was proper. And notice that he never answers their question. He asks them a question. Bring a charge. Bring a charge against me. And this was an accurate response because there were no charges. You cannot ask a defendant to bring his own charges. Here's a man who was shackled. He had his hands in a shackle or behind him. He was arrested. He was bound. He's before the priest. And the priest is saying, why are you here? Tell us what we should charge you with. 
And Jesus says, if you want to bring charges, get somebody to bring the charges. Now, with that, we see their wickedness. As we see in verse 22, And when he had said this, one of the officers standing by gave Jesus a blow saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Now, the language is such that it speaks about him likely hitting him with a staff. The staff would have been the badge of this man's office. This guard would have carried a staff and it is likely that he took that staff and smacked Jesus on the face. He gave him a blow like that. We, that's what we talk about when, we, we, when you're punched. It wasn't in the god or, or something in the knee. It was likely right to his face. It was totally out of line. It was not permissible for him to do what he did. In fact, it was downright cowardly. Jesus was not wrong. Jesus was not guilty of anything. And for this man to strike him is totally inappropriate. But you will find that throughout this entire account in so much of what happened to Jesus during and after the trials. We're going to pick up with the aftermath of the trials next Lord's Day. But here we have this one giving Jesus a blow that was totally not proper. However, it was fulfillment of Scripture. Look at Micah real quick, chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. And that's what happened in John chapter 18. Let's look back to John 18. Back to our text. And I want to just touch on this man's question to Jesus. Here in John chapter 18, he says to Jesus, is that the way you answer the high priest? Think about that for a moment. Who was the high priest? A man. A man. And he was a man who was not even accurate or right with God. Accurate in his theology or right with God in his heart. He was a man. He was a sinful man. He was a wicked man. And yet he was questioning the very Son of God. So, the question is backward. He should turn to the high priest and should say, question you, the Son of the living God, this way? The heart of men is desperately wicked. Can you think of the arrogance Could any of you ever come to Jesus and begin to say, why do you say things like that? How dare you talk like that? Can you imagine that? And yet this question is put to Jesus. This lost potentate 
had no business even talking to the King of kings and Lord of lords. I am reminded again of that passage that we looked at last week when he was arrested and he said in Matthew 26, don't you think I could bring down 12 legions of angels? I can't help but think that the angels were there with their swords drawn and maybe one of them had one right at Annas' throat. But it was only the restraint of Jesus that kept him from killing this wicked potentate for addressing their king that way. Ours is indeed a precious Jesus who allowed this treatment of Himself. I can't help again but think of even what we go through with some people besmeeching us or speaking ill of us because we love Jesus. They, they have it completely backward. We are the ones who have the knowledge of the true and the living God and have been blessed by Him to be those who understand the Scriptures, not uneducated, not naive, not fools. They are the fools. They are the naive. They are the uneducated. It's reversed as it is even here in this text. But now we look quickly to verse 24 here in Matthew 18. Annas therefore sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. For this, I'm going to ask you to turn to Mark chapter 14. We'll pick it up from Mark's Gospel at that point. As we see here, Jesus before Caiaphas. Look all the way down to verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put Him to death and they were not finding any. Remember, we're looking at their trickery and His honesty. They kept looking for something to put Jesus to death and they weren't finding any. So they, they tried to bring these false witnesses. For many were giving false testimonies, verse 56, false testimony against Him, and yet their testimonies were not consistent. And some stood up and began to give false testimony against Him, saying, We heard Him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made with, without hands. He never said that. They're bringing false testimony. They were liars. And the Pharisees knew it. Caiaphas knew it. He knew that they were liars. But you see, it tells us right in the text that they were not interested in justice. What does it say? Now the chief priests in the whole council, verse 55, kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put Him to death. Not to get to the truth. Not to administer justice. But to kill Him. That's all they wanted to do. And you know the heart of men. 
they'd do anything they could to accomplish their task. There were yet no witnesses, no charges. They kept trying and these men gave false testimony. These liars brought false testimony. And look at verse 60. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, Do you not make an answer? How many times you read, and Jesus kept silent. He said nothing. You think about it though. Think about the foolishness. Jesus kept silent. What was He supposed to say? First of all, they didn't bring any charges against Him. Was He supposed to answer to their lies? And we do know that this is also fulfillment of Scripture. As a lamb led to slaughter, He did not open His mouth. And He kept silent. He did not answer them their foolishness. Verse 61, He kept silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest questioned him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Despite their wickedness, despite their trickery, we see Jesus' honesty. Jesus' honesty. He gives them truth. He gives them the truth that they wanted that they needed in order to find Him guilty in their minds, as we will see, of blasphemy. And so Jesus says to them, No, just ask Joseph Smith. I am not the Son of God. No, just ask any rabbi. Just ask any imam. I am not the Son of God. Is that what he says? He says another I am declaration. I am. And you shall see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What a powerful statement. I am the Son of God. In the Gospel of Luke, and you need not turn there, He says to them point blank, Yes, I am. And again and again I tell you, because I find it very exciting, as we see so often in the Gospel of John and elsewhere in the Scriptures, every time Jesus gave these I am declarations, it drove these Pharisees Crazy, because they knew exactly what he meant. And he did it on purpose, as we know he did everything. And he did it for you and for me, that you can be assured that the God you believe in is indeed the God who is God. The true God. I am this is what he says to them. They had nothing to sentence him with. But our precious Lord Jesus sovereignly gives them what they wanted. Gives them what they needed. What if he had said nothing? 
trial would still be going on. The Pharisees would have changed, but Jesus would still be alive. Of course, that could not have happened. But Jesus, sovereignly, in control, gives them the right, the right, the true answer. If He had not, there would have been no cross. No sacrificial death for our sin. I remind you that we're looking at the book of Acts, chapter 4 and verse 27. All of these things that they did, God was sovereignly in control. This is what's happening. Jesus was sovereignly in control. And He gave them the answer that caused this priest to tear his robes in verse 63 and tearing his clothes, which was a thing that was already preset. They had pre-torn robes that they would wear for things like this. So it's not like he had to struggle and go like that. They were already pre-torn and just kind of lightly sewn back. So they'd go like that. And it was a big deal for the priest to tear his clothes, to tear his robe like that. It was a big deal. It was a very showy representation of outrage in the name of God. And that's what the priest did in verse 63. He tore his robe and the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You didn't have any witnesses. The only one that gave you what you needed was the Son of God. Sovereignly giving what these men looked for. In control. Completely honest. He tells them that He is indeed the Son of God. The King of kings. He was their King. And yet they call Him a blasphemer. Verse 64. You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned Him to be deserving of death. Because they said that He was a blasphemer. Let me tell you something. For anyone else to have said to them, yes, I am, it would have been blasphemy. If you said it, if you said it, if you said it, if I said it, it would have been blasphemy. But not Jesus. And here's what you have to ask yourself. Why was it not blasphemy for Jesus to say that He was the Son of God? Because it was true! Because He was indeed the Son of God. This was the truth. People, this is the truth of the ages. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That His Son Jesus came and dwelled among men at the right time as we saw from Galatians. God sent His Son at the exact right time. He came to dwell among men. He left glory and took on the form of a man, was found among men, humbled Himself to be a man. Philippians chapter 2. And here He was before them. It was not blasphemy. It was truth. 
how do these cults get past this? How do they miss? This is why they killed him. Because he claimed to be the Son of God. And yet they say, oh no, Jesus never claimed to be divine. You can't be a Christian and deny His deity. What would be the point? You cannot be a genuinely saved, born again, true Christian and deny His deity. This is what He said. This is why they wanted to put Him to death. And if you say that He was not divine, you're just like them. You're saying He's a blasphemer. You're saying He's a liar. And not these Pharisees and these priests and these false witnesses. They were the liars. Not Jesus. But if you say He's not the divine Son of God, that He is not true God, then you're saying He's a blasphemer. You're just like them. People, we need to address this issue. You need to address this issue in your heart. Was He or was He not divine? Was He or was He not God? Is He God? Or was He a liar? If you say, nope, he was not divine. He was just a good man, a prophet, like the Jesus Seminar or so many others say. If you say, no, he was just a good man, a prophet, as Islam says. Judaism doesn't even say he was a good man. They don't say he was a prophet. If you're, if you're in agreement with them, if you're in agreement with that, just go your way and stay in your sin. You will find out. But if you say that He was divine, do you believe that He was divine? Do you believe that He was God? And if you say, yes, I believe that He was God, then fall down and worship Him. For He is God. And God is worthy of worship. If you believe in your heart of hearts that He is God, then you have no other choice but to fall on your face before Him. Bow before Him and worship Him as God. Give your life to Him, for I believe that this man is God. Give your life to Him. Follow Him. Devote yourself him. If you believe He's divine, there is no other option. Fall before Him for He is God. And this is what we believe as Christians. No matter what the atheists say, no matter what the cults say, no matter what the world religions say, I'm proud to say He's God. He's my God. He's divine. He's the Son of the living God. And I gladly bow to Him and worship Him. One day, every knee will bow. 
The text in Philippians says every knee should be bowing now, but one day every knee will bow and everyone will know that just what He said to these priests is true. He's God. He's God. I must move quickly. Through all their trickery, Jesus was straight forth, came straight forth with the truth that He is indeed the divine Son of God. Now, the only other thing I want for us to see in this text today or this message today is to see not only their trickery and His honesty, but their inability and His sovereignty. For this, I want to turn back to John chapter 18. John chapter 18 And we're going to look for just a few moments at our Lord Jesus before Pilate. Think with me now, if you will. The Jews had what they needed, right? They thought, blasphemy, blasphemy. We've got Him now. He claims to be the Son of God. We've got Him now. What did that mean to Rome? Nothing. Nothing at all. It would be like, one of us going up to Obama and saying, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. Who cares? This is just one step. Jesus gave the Jews, gave the Pharisees, gave the priests what they wanted, but that meant absolutely nothing to Rome. So look here in chapter 18 down to verse 28. As they get him to Pilate, and they had to get Pilate to condemn him. So, verse 28, they led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas into the Praetorium. And it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the Praetorium in order that they might not be defiled. What hypocrites! What utter hypocrites! Because they wanted to eat the Passover. Anyway, verse 29. Pilate therefore went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Now, I want you to look carefully at the accusation that they bring against Jesus. And here it is. Michael, would this hold up in court? They answered and said to him, If the man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Now, there's an accusation for you. Listen, Pilate, take our word. He's a bad guy. They still had no charge. There's nothing that Jesus ever did worthy of being arrested, let alone murdered or executed. They still had no charge. Well, if He wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought Him. Okay, but Pilate wasn't so dumb. So in verse 31, he answers them correctly and says, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. Take him yourselves. This is an issue of your religious beliefs and nothing to do with capital punishment. Take him yourselves. He knew that they were just, remember, delivering him up for envy. He knew that. We read that in the parallel passages. He knew 
that they delivered him up out of envy. Take him yourself. I find no reason to condemn this man. And what we begin to find now is over and over Pilate trying to release Jesus. Because there was no reason to crucify Him. There was no reason to execute Him. So we see effort after effort to free Him, to let Him go, to get Him out of this. But Jesus had to go to the cross. So who brought this about? Let's see here in verse 31 again. Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. That the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. All of this was happening that what Jesus spoke would come to pass. Not only even what Jesus spoke. Remember Psalm 22? Where it clearly depicts the crucifixion of a man. My bones are out of joint. And Just read through Psalm 22. It is a picture of crucifixion centuries before it was even invented. Showing how the Messiah was going to die. So, Jesus knew that he had to go to the cross. And so beginning now, Pilate begins to question him. And we have this tremendous interaction between Pilate and Jesus. And I I can't, I'd love to, but I can't go into this in any depth. Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus defines his kingship in this passage, in this interaction. He says, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate said, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and your chief priests delivered you up to me. What have you done? And here's what Jesus says. This is so profound. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Where is your kingdom? If you are a Christian today, what is your kingdom? Where is your kingdom? It isn't here. It isn't in America. This is our king. And we're part of the kingdom of Jesus. King Jesus. As he says, his kingdom is not of this realm. Now, verse 38, Pilate asks him what is truth. And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Still, no guilt. No guilt in Jesus. But you have a custom that I should release someone for you at the Passover? Do you wish that I release to you the king of the Jews? Therefore they cried out and said, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. And we know from parallel passages that he was accused of insurrection and likely murder. But they cried out, Give us Barabbas. 
Give us Barabbas. Pilate was trying to release Jesus and yet they wanted Barabbas. They had such a hatred for Jesus. He had to die. Remember, he was taking away their kingdom, not Barabbas. Who cares what Barabbas does? Jesus is the one who is taking everyone away from them. Jesus was taking all the followers. Jesus was taking away their nation and their place. And they had to get rid of Him. So, give us Barabbas. What do we care if He's a murderer and Jesus is sinless? The depth of depravity of the human heart. The hatred that they had. And I tell you, that this is the same kind of hatred that I was talking about in the beginning of the message. The hatred that the world has for you is the hatred that these priests and Pharisees had for Jesus. They don't want people to follow what we believe. They don't want people to believe the Bible. They don't want people to know the God of the Bible. They hate us. They hate our God. They hate our Gospel. And these men hated Jesus so much that they were willing to ask for a thief, a robber, and likely a murderer as opposed to Jesus who did such horrible, wicked things as to give the blind back their sight, to give the crippled back their ability to walk, to give those who could not speak the ability to speak again, to heal men, to feed men, and to raise men from the dead. Oh, the depth of horror of those terrible things that Jesus did. Do you see the foolishness and the wickedness? But again I say, Jesus had to go to the cross. The sovereign plan of God had to come to pass. So, they're trying to get Him released doesn't work. So in, in chapter 19 and verse 1, Pilate therefore took Jesus and had Him scourged. Maybe if they see Him beat up, that will be enough. Scourging was a horrible thing. We're going to talk about that next week. But He had Jesus scourged. The flesh torn off His back. And He brings Him out before them. And I, I don't really want to go into what they did to Him here. But then Pilate comes to them and he says to them in verse 4, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Is that enough? He's scourged. He's been ridiculed. He's been mocked. Is that enough? When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw Him, they cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take Him yourselves and crucify Him, for I find no guilt in Him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and by that law He ought to die, because He made Himself out to be the Son of God. What? When Pilate therefore heard this statement, he was even more afraid. What? You mean to tell me this man says he's the Son of God? You remember again from the parallel passages that Pilate's wife came and said to him, have nothing to do with this man. For she had trouble in a dream over him. 
There's some supernatural stuff going on here. And now you're telling me He's the Son of God? And so he entered back in and he deals with Jesus and he says to him in verse 9, Where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And now we find out the foundation, the crux of the whole situation. As Jesus said, You have no authority over Me unless it be given to you from above. For this reason He who delivered Me up has the greater sin. Pilate had no authority. How could that be? He's the governor. He even said, don't you know I have authority? Jesus doesn't answer. Jesus doesn't answer. And now he says, no, you don't. You can't do a thing unless I let it happen. Once again, I'm thinking of those flaming swords of the angels. Do you not think I could call 12 legions of angels and put a stop to this immediately? Right there. Right then. But then there would have been no crucifixion. Then there would have been no sacrificial death of the spotless Lamb of God to pay for our sin debt. We would still be in our sins. We would still be lost. We would still have to pay for our own guilt and sin before a holy God. And so Jesus said, you have no authority except it be given. And that's the whole point. It was given. Their inability, Jesus' sovereignty. The Jews could not crucify Him because they just couldn't do it. And Pilate didn't want to crucify Him, but he could not help but crucify Him because of the sovereign plan of God. And as you know from here, Pilate goes on to make more efforts to release Him. But a riot ensues. He washes His hands and turns Him over to be crucified. He could not crucify Him. The Jews couldn't crucify Him. And Pilate couldn't not crucify Him. Why? Because God is sovereign. Look back to Acts chapter 4. This, I tell you, is what these men are saying in their prayer. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They were gathered together, but only because they were doing whatever Thy hand, Thy purpose, predestined to occur. God is in control. Even through the trials of our Lord Jesus, God was in control. The sovereignty of God 
in the cross of Christ. He is God. Always in control. I pray and I trust that you know Him as such in your heart and in your life. Next Lord's Day, we're going to see that He was in control even on the cross. Even on the cross. Jesus was sovereign. And there are some things that we're going to see next week that ought to just stir our hearts. Stir our hearts before we remember His death in the Lord's Supper. God, I pray, help you to know this God. Jesus was divine. And as God, He was in control. If you believe He is divine, Bow to Him. Bow to Him. Embrace His sovereignty in your life. Worship Him as who He is. True God. Let's pray.